Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 97. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we talk about 3D printing a site in Bolivia to better understand it. Let's get to it. Well, I just got back um, a couple hours ago from a school field trip. We went down to the University of Pennsylvania Museum, and uh, I didn't get the chance to meet with Kyle Olson, who we had on interviewed last week. Uh, But as I've said before, I got my MA and my PhD at Penn uh, in the anthro department. Kyle Olson is at Penn in the anthro department. And um, now this week, uh, since we're doing a Penn-themed month, apparently, in January, uh, we have somebody else, an old friend of mine, Alexi Vranich, who was also at Penn alongside me and actually lived in the same house as me for a year or two uh, when we were grad students there. Alexi is calling in today from Cambodia. He's working at Angkor Wat, but uh, we brought him in because not for the work that he's doing there, but for work that he's done at Tiwanaku. Last month, there was a publication in the uh, in Heritage Science, an online journal called Reconstructing Ancient Architecture at Tiwanaku, Bolivia, The Potential and Promise of 3D Printing. And it was a very interesting article and really right up our alley here on Architects. So uh, without further ado, Alexi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm calling in, as you said, from Cambodia. We just started work uh, over at Angkor. And uh, it's a beautiful, cool morning here. Wonderful. Uh, now, most of your work, I remember you giving a presentation way back in the day uh, on Angkor Wat. Uh, but I understand most of your work is in uh, Tiwanaku, or do you split your time between the two places? Actually, I split my time between uh, the two countries of Peru and Bolivia. But it's the same area. It's the Highland Andes. Uh, and one of my projects is at the site of Tiwanaku. That's about 500 to 1,000 AD, uh, and that's on Mm -hmm. the Bolivian side. And the other part is in Cusco, as in Cusco of Machu Picchu fame with the Inca Empire. And Uh uh, I've been working there for the last few years also. Both of them deal with monumental architecture and what we call pre-Columbian urbanism. Right. And so monumental architecture is uh, basically the uh, the theme of the the article that you wrote, uh, the one that would you know, published last month, December, well, for our audience, uh, December of 2018. Uh, we've got the link in the show notes. And can you give us a brief uh, explanation of what the building was and what you were trying to do that, uh, that's different about it, how, what your approach was? Well, this is uh, the working I was doing at, at Tiwanaku uh, was all over the site. But my dissertation and, and my first love of the place was this place called the Pumapunko our gateway of the Puma or Jaguar. And this was considered one of the most amazing buildings at the site, if not the entire Andes. And people that had gone by uh, through that area, starting as early as 1539, looked at it and said, what did this look like? Because these blocks were huge. They were incredibly accurately cut. And they're also scattered about. It was really clear, even at that moment, that the building had never been finished. And since that moment, 
people have been trying to reconstruct what this looked like. We really hadn't progressed too much, including myself. I'd spent about you know 15 years working at the site and looking at these blocks and not making much progress, trying all these different types of technological approaches from laser scanning uh, to other types of photogrammetry. Uh, and then 3D printing started. And that gave me another idea to take the blocks that we had already measured out by hand uh, through our project and other archaeologists, and then simply type them in by hand into the computer, create models, and then print them out. Great. So now the uh, in the article, you say that the um, the site, or the Pumapunku rather, has been really uh, badly mined, I guess, <laughs> essentially for its blocks, uh, d- greatly disturbed over time. And the blocks are, you know, in different positions. A lot of them are broken. But uh, you're going... Uh, let's see, in the article, you talk about doing some things like photogrammetry, but in the end, uh, as I understand it, that's not what you were using for the 3D printing. You were using other measurements. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that is correct. Um, we did some photogrammetry and that requires, you know, it's, it's all, it's amount of time to be able to take all the pictures and then bring you into the computer and fix it up. Uh, what we ended up doing mostly is first understanding what exactly are our needs, Photogrammetry is going to record the surface of the stone in incredible detail, but we really didn't need that. What we needed was to have the the geometric form of the block uh, in its intended form. So surface erosion, recent breaks, areas that are missing weren't actually important to this type of project. So we reduced the amount of data down to from photogrammetry would have you know thousands, if not more, of measurements uh, in digital form down to, you know, a dozen or so measurements down to maybe eight for a single block. And with that form, which was accurately measured, uh, we had enough to start piecing them together. How big are these blocks uh, in real life? Well, some of them are, are small. You can put it, in, put it in your hand. That would be a, a small example to some of the largest ones uh, made of andesite, which is, you know, maybe three or four meters across uh, about maybe 12 tons, if not more. And then they had the foundations that were set on, uh, which are uh, sandstone blocks. And I think the biggest block there is 130 tons. Mm. Were those it's a big block? I know. Were those, uh, were those carved right there? Or was it, what, do you know where the quarry was for some of those? Well, for uh, the sandstone blocks, they were about maybe 10 kilometers away. Wow. Uh, so that that was a substantial amount of dragging uh, to get it there. <laughs> but, uh, but for the andesite, it was on the other side of the lake. Mm. So they had to get it across. And several years ago for, for one TV show, we actually made one of the reed boats that you could uh, see on the lake, mostly for tourists now, uh, that would have been bundled up like reeds from Egypt or what Tor Heyerdahl did. And we made ourselves a, a large 12-ton boat and were able to um, to bring across uh, one of these stones, a 10-ton stone from one side to another. Really? On a reed boat? On a reed boat, yes. So that was wow. no problem. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yeah, jeez. Maybe they just flooded the whole area and brought the sandstone in that way too. <laughs> well, we really don't know, except we got a lot of drag marks. And then we have things around the area called tired stones, piedras cansadas. Uh, and that relates a little bit to the animism uh, of the uh, of the culture, the idea that stones themselves are alive. And at a certain point, the stone just became tired 
uh, and couldn't make it to the mm-hmm. site. So we do have the route more or less that it would have taken from quarry to to the site. Uh, the blocks that you still have at the site uh, that you were measured, how many how many of them were you dealing with total? Uh, we ended up making about 150 blocks. And what's the uh, what's the overall dimensions of this building of this structure rather the uh, the Puma Punku? What is it? The just uh, the Puma Punku, the complex itself is is quite large. We're just addressing in, in this research a smaller area, which was the central ritual focus. So mm-hmm. we're looking at you know, um, good lord, what is it? Uh, Thirty meters by by six meters, an area of this um, would have been an amazing building, uh, incredibly built up. And all with this ashlar masonry, all all uh, no other materials to it. Uh, as far as we know, you know, we get two meters of rain uh, and all types of wind up there, and all types of adverse conditions. So the only thing that does preserve uh, will be the stone. Mm-hmm. Question about you know the actual reconstruction of this thing, which is the focus of this article and the reason you were 3D printing this was so you can try to figure out what the heck was this thing? How did these blocks fit back together? Because there wasn't like a, they didn't leave the blueprints laying around. So along those lines, um, some of the, I guess, evidence that you used to help reconstruct the blocks themselves was um, historical evidence that people had made drawings and even photographs from, you know, a hundred plus years ago. Uh, showing early visits to the site. Did you have any other ethnographic evidence or any other evidence in the area of similar blocks being used for construction where you could maybe say, hey, maybe it was one of these buildings or something similar? Well, initially, we didn't have any of this. Uh, We Mm -hmm. have descriptions from the initial moment of, of the Spanish conquest. And those are short descriptions saying things like, this is amazing. This is huge. There's some there's some doorways standing up. Um, and they they convey a sense of um, you know amazement and awe more than actual anything that we can go by when it comes to reconstructing. We start getting our first maps and drawings in the middle of the 19th century, but by that point, all these blocks have been moved around. Uh, the areas under some of the uh, platforms or the slabs where the building would have been set has been um, undermined, looking for treasure, and even in one case, just completely shattered open. So we had very little evidence, actually, I'd say no evidence at all of what standing architecture at Tiwanaku looked like. So we started off pretty bad. Uh, We had a building that was never finished, uh, and the blocks are missing, and we don't know what it looked like. So we were trying to reconstruct (laughs) the intent of something that never existed and we don't even have anything to compare it to. So it was, um, it was a tough start. And, and that's why for the last 500 years or so, people have been saying, what did this look like? Uh, and the reconstructions have been strange. And of course, ancient alien folks, the Puma Punko is the, is the, the, the golden child of the ancient alien folks. Mm-hmm. So if you type that in on, online, 10,000 sites appear uh, related to uh, aliens and, and technology. So we started off with very little information. Uh, we did have other people go to the sites and make, in the last century, a few connections between the blocks. So we did have some background information. And that was the case of several uh, large blocks that had been shattered, and those were pieced together. Uh, so we knew that there were some large gateways. And then uh, a researcher over at UC Berkeley, a colleague of mine, John Pierre Protzen, uh, was able to make a few connections based on the fact that these blocks were, uh, you know, very well formed. There would have been no mortar. It just would have been stone on stone 
precise connections, probably the most precise in the continent. So you're able to put a few together. Uh, so we, we had a little bit of clues. And then he had a breakthrough because one of the more elaborate stones that looked like a little miniature something, uh, I mean, and this is a large, large block that cannot be moved by a person, uh, he realized that that was a representation of a wall of a temple. So we had a model. And this model was actually quite accurate. Uh, it was down to, it was just, it was a 0.57% reduction of a larger temple. And taking that wall of this one model apart, he was able to reconstruct what a wall would have looked like uh, for a building. But he wasn't able to put that wall on the foundations or understand its context. So that's how we started off. Yeah, that model was really interesting to me when I read the article because, you know, it's not small, like you said, and in its own right would have taken, uh, I, don't, I don't know, this is the question, how long, you know, do we know ethnographically or just from stoneworking in general around the world, how long it would have taken to make something like that model in particular? Because I'm, I'm curious as to basically the time frame of construction for the entire site and estimation on time frame and, you know, trying to piece back, you know, really what was going on back there. So do you, do you have an estimate on time for stoneworking and things like that? Like, let's just take that model for as an example. Wow. Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> no, no, I, I can say not. Listen, that, that stone, you know, to drag from one side of the lake to the other takes its time. Uh, then yeah. you have to bring it up. And then the technology or the methods they were using for it is not completely known. How much, mm -hmm. how much they want to spend on And we're dealing with a ritual building. So neither time nor energy is of consideration when you're building for the gods and, and you're building for eternity. So it's a whole different scale when it comes to making something like this. So, mm -hmm. no, I, I have no estimates at all. Now, but to answer questions, we did have uh, excavations around the area and we were able to, to find some carbon dates. Uh, related to the construction of the complex around it and some changes in masonry. Uh, and the interesting thing about it is that the Puma Punko is seen as the example, the apogee, the, you know, the, the greatest you know, achievement of the Tiwanaku culture, if not all of Andean architecture, and is thought to be the last building on site. And since it was left unfinished, People have come up with the ideas that, you know, suddenly invaders came in and people dropped their tools and ran, or there was a sudden collapse because of a plague or environment. But the dates we had on it were very early, about maybe 400 years before the collapse of polity, even 200 years before it became large mm -hmm. uh, in its uh, moment of, of the greatest uh, influence. So the best building, the most elaborate building is one of the earlier buildings on site. And then later on, we get stonework, which, which looks good, but it's not as good as a Puma Punko. So we have this uh, maybe one or two generations where at the site, they're building in this incredibly precise way. And then they decide to not continue with it and literally abandon it and left it and went off to build other things uh, in a less precise way. That's interesting. Do you have any uh, antecedents of uh, this kind of construction? Now, what we were able to do as we continued, I realized that, you know, when I'm putting this together, these pieces were printed out. So I have 150 pieces. We milled out the, the foundation in, in wood uh, and then put it on the table. And it was in my living room for about a year. Uh, and all the pieces were there. I was actually living as a faculty in residence 
uh, in the dormitories with the students. So students would come in, and, and first of all, they're look, they're wondering why is this middle aged guy living in the freshman dorm? And once they got over that, um, they uh, <laughs> shame on you. Yeah, they're, they're like either this guy is the coolest guy ever, or something's wrong. We don't know. And then there's this elaborate <laughs> demonic Lego set on the on the table in the living room. And they go, well, what is this? And I go, well, this are pieces of a temple that that we excavated. And it's been reduced 4% its original size. And I'm trying to put it together. And it just stayed there. And, you know, I'd put things together. The cat would jump on it at night, knock it over. And the process would continue again in the morning. And this was the beauty of 3D printing as opposed to putting it all on the computer and trying to rotate it. It was very intuitive. So once it was there, it just simply existed like a puzzle in your house that you work on for a while and eventually you get bored, you get frustrated, you leave, you come back the next day and then all of a sudden you make a connection. Like, Oh wait, that piece goes there, that piece goes there. So it had been set up on the living room table as a way of having it there passively uh, for about a full year. And as I would sit there with my coffee or just hanging out, every once in a while I would make a connection. And then all of a sudden you're like, there's no way I'm going to advance. And then maybe a few days or a week would go by without anything. And then you'd be like, oh, wait, that goes there. And that was the case with that model stone. There were several pieces of this, of this tiny sort of version of the temple. When I say tiny, about the size of a person, uh, height-wise. And it had been laid out in front of me and uh, it had been represented in publications as a facade. And I'd try to create a facade out of it going, maybe this is like the back of the temple or maybe the front. And then one day just sitting there with my cat and some coffee, uh, I just grabbed one piece and realized, wait, these meet at right angles. And I just simply flipped them around. And that was just one of these moments when all of a sudden all the pieces started falling into place. Cause now I had one side of a miniature temple, and then I had another side, and then another side, and then all these pieces came in. I could see the relationships, at least in in tiny form, of what a Tiwanaku building would have looked like, and then that became the basis uh, for adding several more of these pieces together. Hmm. That's really cool. Um, a little early, but why don't we take a break? And when we come on the other side of the break, we can uh, we can bug you, ask some uh, actual technical details about how you went about making these models and uh, who worked on you with uh, the reconstructions and what some of the takeaways would be that you had of this, uh, this way of proceeding with reconstructing the architecture. Hey everyone, Chris Webster here, co-founder of the Archaeology Podcast Network, and I just wanted to put out a quick plea for members and underwriters. So if you head on over to arcpodnet.com forward slash members, you can support us with a monthly, basically donation, but you get a lot of extra perks with that. Uh, from swag to private Slack team to interact with the hosts and myself and Tristan, the other co-founder, and a bunch of other things. And also, we're looking for underwriters. We need people to underwrite this podcast because it costs a lot of money to actually keep it going every month. We're looking at about three to $4,000 a month. So for $1,000 a month, you can actually underwrite every episode of the podcast network for, I said, one month. And that's a bunch of shows with your message on it and 135,000 plus people hearing it. So head on over to arcpodnet.com forward slash ads for that. And thank you very much to all the people that have supported us in the past and continue to support us. Now back to the show. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 97. And we are talking about 3D printing. So, Alexi, I think uh, I think it's time to get into a little bit of nuts and bolts on this 3D printing because you basically had... Well, you had one choice for your 3D printing method, which we've actually talked about in the past, which is, you know, you're, you're fairly common. In fact, I'm, I'm literally 3D printing something as we speak in plastic, the PLA plastic, which you mentioned in the article here. But you guys decided to go another way. So I don't really want to talk about the plastic too much because we have talked about that before. But you use something called the powder method. And I'm wondering, uh, first, can you explain, without getting into the technical details, how that differs from the plastic method? What, what's, your, what's, what's your end result for this? Uh, the end result is it looks like a piece of marble. That would be the best description of it. It even has a weight and feel of it. Uh, but mm-hmm. to get to that point, it's plaster of Paris, dust being placed down in, in micron layers. takes a few hours, of course. And then once you have that, you have a pretty fragile uh, form that you pull out mm-hmm. of this powder bed. Uh, then you brush it off, and then you essentially drip crazy glue on it carefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's dangerous. Basically, you work for undergrads. Um, so we, uh, so they do that, and they get sticky fingers, and perhaps they inhale some things. However, um, the result is that we have a piece that ha- looks and feels like soapstone or marble. And what's the advantage of that? Yeah, uh, the advantage of it is you know flat out feels good. It just feels <laughs> good, and uh, you think that's sort of like. You know, are, are you making something for the pleasure of it? No, I'm, you're making it because you need for it to be handled. You need to be to be felt. And as archaeologists, we spend so much time picking up pieces and we bring in so much information from our fingers, from the weight of something, um, from its feel, that I wanted to replicate something that also had, in very much reduced form, the feel of stone architecture. In this case, also a feel of what an, a real artifact would be like. In by picking up a piece of plastic, you know, for an archaeologist, you see something on the ground, you pick it up, it's plastic, you immediately you know, recoil in horror and drop it because uh, it's not archaeological. Uh, so you're looking for something that you want to to look at and you want to feel, and every time you touch it, you're essentially dropping information into the subconscious part of your brain. Yeah, that was one of the bigger things I was wondering about when I read the article was I was looking at output in your primary goal. And it seemed to me like your primary goal was to basically try to reconstruct the building and have a scale model with which to do that. And I was like, okay, the method you used was more expensive, but produced a more accurate, more realistic feeling model. 
But my first question was, okay, but was that necessary? Because you could have done the same thing with the plastic, even though there's expansion and contraction of plastic and things like that. It changes a little bit. doesn't seem like it would change enough that you couldn't actually reconstruct the building. But I guess if you're only going to do it probably once, realistically, you may as well have a really good one. Is that kind of what you were thinking? Basically, yes. This, this is not something yeah. that I need to do one week and then we have, you know, 10 more to go before the end of the month. This yeah. was something that had been my, you know, obsession almost for two decades. It had been a <laughs> question that had been asked 500 years ago and then over and over again. Uh, so it was worth it. It was worth mm-hmm. to, to print it out. Now, I could have print this out in plastic or in corn-based um, uh, solutions, and that would have been $200. And instead, mm-hmm. we did it this way, and that was $1,200. Uh, considering how much time had already been invested in this project, that wasn't a big deal. Okay. It's good to know. Good to know. I had never actually heard of this method before, and it sounds it sounds really cool for producing something that, that comes out as a, uh, as, I mean, something you can leave on your coffee table for a year, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it looks nice. Well, I liked it. That resonated with me because I, um, anytime I handle a conventionally printed extruded plastic 3d printed object i do have that what you just said recoil from it i don't i don't actually like the tactile sense of uh, of most 3d printed objects they feel a little weird to me so this that you said that you went with a different thing with a different material specifically for the feel uh, made a lot of sense to me in a in a very you know in a gut sense in a gut way um and also, you know, tied hand in hand, and you did mention this, is that we as archaeologists are used to handling things and we're used to, uh, to picking things up and fitting them together. I mean, how much time have we, uh, the three of us here, spent in our lives fitting together pieces of pottery? Mm. Right. Um, I know I've spent a lot of time in Italy, in the, just like we were saying in the last section, you know, like one does a puzzle. You know, I would wander into the uh, the workshop on projects where the uh, where the ceramicist is trying to piece together pots or trying to come up with the typology and just feel the the the, the sherds for a little bit. And so, you know, that that really seems like a way of um, exploiting a particular niche that uh, that we as archaeologists have a particular set of skills that we may not even been taught of. Uh, taught explicitly as a set of skills, but just, um, you know, how we're used to dealing with materials. Alexi, in relation to basically after you had your kind of aha moment and you got the building, I guess, reconstructed, I mean, there's images of it here in the, uh, in the article. Do you think it's right? Like, I mean, it all fits together that way and looks like a building, <laughs> but what is, what is, what percentage in your brain is saying, you know, this, this might not be right. <laughs> well, uh, let me, let me, uh, let me clarify one thing. I was able to to reconstruct well the model, and this was a miniature model <laughs> of a temple that existed within the larger temple. Right. So we have that down, and I'm I'm very confident when it comes to when it when it comes to that reconstruction. That being said, one of the things about using this model is that it these types of printouts is that it doesn't you have the ability not to get too attached to a narrative. Um, and this is something that it almost comes up in, I guess my comparison would be every show on Netflix about crime where <laughs> somebody gets, you know, they have their information, they find a guy and then the police decide just to go after that guy and ignore all the other information. Right. Uh, and then some journalist comes up and goes, oh, but you never considered this and so on. In this case, I could put these pieces out and as opposed to having them on the computer where they're set 
uh, or just using that, I could put them on the table. And of course, the cat would knock it over eventually. And then I'd have to put it back together. And that allowed me to go back and refit these things over and over and over. Uh, And more than once, I had a fit. And I was like, I mean, a fit. I had uh, two (laughs) pieces that uh, that actually, you know, joined together. And I was happy because that was my progress for the day. And then next morning, I'd wake up, find the pieces on the ground, um, and then try to put it back together and realize, you know what? This doesn't fit. Hmm. And uh, then you have to drop it. So it allows you not to quickly start already uh, creating a narrative of what the building looked like, but it had to be retested several times. In the case of the model, I'm fairly confident. And that became the basis for putting together the other 145 blocks. Uh, And in that case, I have enough information to have the general form of the building uh, and its layout and enough to be able to draw some conclusions and interpretations. But there's a lot of blocks that are laying around that I simply don't know where they went. And given time, you know, uh, we'll perhaps find another block, another block here, uh, and that'll be fit together. But those are sort of architectural details. I do have enough to say it's like, okay, this was the form of the building. And Paul, to go back to one of your questions, is there any like antecedents to it? Well, that's when we made another discovery because Tiwanaku is supposed to be this primary state, uh, this incredible new um, form of human society. People pretty much ignored the previous earlier societies that existed in the area just because Tiwanaku was supposed to be a structural difference from one culture to another. It'd be like trying to reconstruct Nero's palace by using a description of Romulus's hut. It's like, okay, they're in the same area. But they're not really that good when it comes to uh, sort of like as an analog for one for the other. Mm. Uh, in this case, there was all these previous cultures where they said, no, Tiwanaku was spectacular. It's like the Inca or like the Aztecs. They had nothing to do with the previous stuff. That's how great they were. And then once we had some of it together, we looked at some adobe buildings and photographs from excavations from UPenn, actually. Uh, and we realized, oh, Wow. This building is the stone version of an adobe ritual building uh, mm. that existed wow. 500 years before. So it's essentially it was a skiomorph, similar to Greek temples being the stone version of the archaic wooden forms, and then Roman temples copying it. And now we have you know the capital of the United States, and we have post offices that have forms in there that are essentially uh, wooden stone versions of wooden um, motifs. So we were able to look at that and go, indeed, we have a previous version of the Puma Punko. And the Puma Punko had been immortalized in stone. So once we had the model, once we had some previous forms from photographs uh, from early excavations, we were able to put the building together and go, at least we know where it came from, what its final appearance was. But as for all the other blocks, oh my God, yeah, we have a lot, a lot more blocks to do. So what I ended up doing was um, teaching the, the local folks here, and this is a great thing about this method, is that as opposed to laser scans or computers, other things that, re- that don't do well at 13,000 feet, I invited the, uh, the folks from Tiwanaka over. I printed out another version of the model, gave it to them, and showed them this method where they could go off into the field, measure it, model it on the computer using SketchUp, 
which is uh, a very inexpensive, intuitive program. They could send it to me if they want. I could print it out and send it back to them. So if they ever found another block, and there are lots of them still laying around, they could model it, do that, and then continue with the process down in, at the site itself. Nice. And the, the overall model, this, uh, this one that you had pieced together, the 150-some-odd blocks, is that still uh, the school there? Well, I have one of them is, is with me, and, uh-huh. the, and the other one I printed out, uh, and because it had to be transported, I actually printed it out in a, in a sort of a plastic base, mm-hmm. and that was given to the uh, local authorities. They were delighted with it, and now that one exists at the site museum. And uh, my hope is that you know, we can put that up as an exhibit in the museum itself so people can see the process of sort of archaeological thought and the way that archaeologists are so good at visualizing 3D space. Just so everybody knows, you've got a, a file that's available with this article. And correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just I'm just reading this again. Um, it's the actual, all the blocks, so somebody could print them out themselves. You've got the, uh, the uh, STL files that you can just print out on anything? I, I, correct. Uh, right yeah. on that article, there's two files. One of them is the SketchUp file, so you can okay. download that. Download SketchUp. You get it for free for eight hours. You can play around with it. Uh, and if you find something that fits together, you could even you know, put it together virtually, send it to me if you'd like, and say, hey, does this fit? And the other nice. one are the STL files, which you know, if you have your own printer or you have access to one, print them out and go for it. Look at the rules that you know, J.P. Protzen at UC Berkeley established. Look at the fits that I did reconstruct them. And then if you can find something else, you know, the wisdom of crowds, oh, please, let's, let's put this building together. Cool. Very cool. Uh, so a couple, a couple of the rules that you, uh, you found, you know, you explained in the article about uh, how you would explore trying to find the logic of the buildings. And this is getting towards my love of uh, ancient architecture. So the, the, these blocks are all monolithic. They're faced on both sides, right? They're faced on every side. Right. Uh, the front to back is absolutely perfect. So that means that in, uh, in this wouldn't necessarily work in other kinds of sites where you have a bunch of standard blocks, uh, maybe even just faced on one side with some kind of fill. Uh, so that's nice that you can do that. But then because these are big monolithic blocks, you were able to sort them in various ways. And can you tell the, uh, the listeners what you found was a very effective sorting mechanism or method rather? Uh, that helped you try to start to see them and see the uh, the logic behind them? Well, think, think of the, the start of this. I thought, great, let's put this together. And then all of a sudden, I have 150 blocks in front of me in a pile. And I'm like, how in the world am I going to start developing these categories? Like, let me pull out the ones that we know go together. So then I have 144 blocks left. And, you know, go, how, what do we do? Now, we know that the Tiwanaku really liked horizontal coursing. Uh, And this was absolutely precise, as in the blocks were set and then perhaps even all ground down at the same time. So it's not a wavy course. It's not alternating or blocks being fit. They would create one course and then another course. So we thought, you know what, let's go with that method and let's divide up blocks just by their height. This would have taken forever on the computer. You have to measure it out, measure it out. Here, we just put all the blocks in their standing position and put our hand on it. And you can tell that one's higher than that one, that one's higher than that one. So in about five minutes, we had all these categories based on height. And we knew, at least according to this rule, is that the ones of similar height belonged most likely to the same course on the building. So we couldn't have ones from a taller height or larger um, with with a smaller one. 
so there we were able to go. It's like maybe these guys fit. So we're able to reduce some categories uh, and some blocks down to who are their likely neighbors. That really, uh, that observation really interested me, especially with regards to how you're putting it together, because it seems almost exactly like what, how we start doing a jigsaw puzzle, right? You lay out all the pieces and you find the corners and the edges and you start building that edge out and you know, you, you've got a logic then, you've got uh, parameters to, uh, to fit the rest of it in. So I thought that that was a, uh, that was a particularly ingenious way to, of looking at these, uh, these 3D printed blocks to, to try to piece together your puzzle. Exactly. That's, we have to have some guidelines and understanding the rules or some aspects of the rules was essential because when I brought this to a conference and I put it down in front and then we had about maybe 80 different Andean archaeologists. So they're all familiar with Tiwanaku, with the area. They're all seg- excited about it. They didn't have those rules or those understanding. And I thought, let's see if they can put any of them together. And zero. It was out there for three days. And we have the world experts in the continent doing that. And it's not because they're, you know, they're not smart, but because they didn't have that understanding of what the corner pieces were, what are the ones that even went together. So you had people trying to put a puzzle together with a red piece and trying to force it together with a black piece, uh, you know, or some other color. And under no condition would that ever happen. So while at the start of it, we didn't know exactly what it looked like, we knew that certain combinations couldn't exist. And that brought us closer to what could actually exist. You know, I, I don't have a familiarity very much with Andean archaeology, let alone architecture. And I'm wondering with the complexity of this building and, and how it went together, is that normal for other Andean archaeology that is actually together? that you can see that it's constructed of so many different pieces and laid out in the way that it is? Or was this building kind of a one-off? Because it, it's kind of making me think that with the couple generations it would have taken to not only quarry, but car, drag and carve and then put all these pieces together that maybe they just didn't put it together because the guy with the plans in his head died after they, <laughs> before, they, before they could get to construction. And there was like, I don't know how this goes together. <laughs> so they just abandoned it. I mean, is this typical of architecture in that area? No, no, this, is, this isn't typical at all. This is such a yeah. unique building to the point, as I say, you know, go on. Go on YouTube and you can see that that uh, that one guy from Ancient Aliens going. It's like this is the <laughs> best evidence for alien intervention. Uh, it is that unique. So I I did get a method that was very applicable to this building. And as Paul, you said, you know, other buildings might not be that good uh, when it comes to using this method because I had down to millimeter accuracy. Uh, in one build, one block, it was off by a centimeter. And I said, this block and that block doesn't fit. Uh, they just don't fit. This is a very special building. And now we have to go look to see, well, where else can we use it with this level of accuracy? The sandstone at, here at Angkor would be one example. There's going to be other places around the world. But when it comes to other sites, uh, if this method is usable, and I think it is, it's going to have to be modified. Well, I think that uh, we can leave it with that because this has been an interesting discussion of, uh, of experimentation in archaeology, trying to bring in a new method to interpret old, uh, old architecture that, uh, that people have looked at and scratched their heads at. And uh, you seem to have um, taken a good solid chip at it with, uh, with this 3D printing as a way of exploring uh, you know, how things fit. Um, it's really cool. Thanks for sharing it with us. Well, thank you there, Paul, and, and say old old architecture, but also like to add, you know, some of these blocks don't exist anymore. 
But, you know, mm. drawings from the 1800s, if they're accurate, could be also modeled and brought in into the modern period. So it's an, another way to, to bring up archival information and make it compatible. Yeah, that's great. And, and kind of puts a point on, uh, I, I'm a cultural resource management archaeologist here in this country, and always put an emphasis on detailed uh, analysis and explanation and, and description and photographs and drawings, because you never know what it's going to be used for later or how far into the future. So, exactly. And, and some of these yeah. folks had the craziest ideas, but really good drawings. So the result is, <laughs> yeah, we could use them. Very nice. All right. Well, thank you, Alexi. And uh, thanks again, Paul, for, for hooking up this interview. And, uh, and we'll be back in a second with App of the Day segment. Thank you all. Thanks, Alexi. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 97. And this is our App of the Day segment. Uh, when I first got into 3D printing, uh, what I was told to go check out, uh, one of the websites was Thingiverse, T-H-I-N-G. I-V-E-R-S-E. And they have a website, but they also have uh, smartphone applications. So you can just like, you know, you're sitting there, I don't know, waiting for an Uber or a dinner or something. <laughs> you can explore Thingiverse. And there are so many crazy things on Thingiverse that people have thought about. I opened up the app and they've got some featured stuff sitting here. And one of, this, this, one of them is this little Christmas elf town lamp. It just looks like they printed this little town setting in white and then put a light under it. And that's pretty much it. And it looks amazing. Um, I know. And I was inspired after reading this article to get back into the 3D printing because I hadn't done anything in a while. And I printed a nice little business card holder for myself that I found on Thingiverse. And the nice thing about Thingiverse files is you get them as OBJ files, so object files or STL files. And depending on what software you're using to modify or print with these, uh, you can usually just send them straight to your printer. Whatever printer software you have, I'm using an Ultimaker. Uh, two plus or whatever it is. And that printer uses the Ultimaker Cura software, C-U-R-A. And you just bring it in there and then that creates what's called a G-code file, which is basically just a complicated series of XYZ uh, coordinates to actually make your print. And the Cura app uses the STL file. So all that means is you download straight from Thingiverse, you can bring it right into your 3D printer uh, file, but you can also bring it into an intermediate step of and I use Tinkercad, which is also an online free service, which I'll talk about at a later date. Um, but basically, I took these things I got off of Thingiverse, modified them slightly with Tinkercad, added some stuff to them, and now I'm printing them. I, I printed the business card holder yesterday. It looks fantastic. Um, as with a lot of things in 3D printing, sometimes you got to do a little post prep to it if you want it to really be polished, which means uh, probably this evening when I get home, I'm going to run a little 220 grit sandpaper uh, over the top of it because... 
3D printing is a series of layers, and those plastic layers are hot, and plastic expands, contracts, does different things as it heats up and, and then cools down, and you end up with these almost imperceptible ridges, depending on the accuracy with which you used. But um, anyway, those are topics for another discussion. But I just wanted to bring up Thingiverse, because even if you don't have a 3D printer, um, you can find stuff on Thingiverse, and then uh, actually just send it to print. It's almost like Amazon, <laughs> except yeah. you send it to a printer and they send you back a 3D printed object. I've got a couple quick follow-ups for you. Um, what yeah. How long did it take uh, between downloading this file? I mean, I, I'm assuming that you spent hours looking for just the right one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so once you found that one and you downloaded it, what, what was the turnaround time between downloading it, uh, uploading it to uh, Tinkercad, fiddling it with it there, and, uh, and getting yeah. it ready for the printer? The whole process between downloading it and getting it ready for the printer was maybe 10 minutes oh, really? um, because I've, I've used these before. So I kind of know what I'm doing, but, and I knew exactly what kind of modifications I wanted to make. Like I, I, these are for my wild note business cards. So I just used the text option in Tinkercad, wrote the word wild note, found the right font, took a minute to figure out whether I want it to be recessed as holes or raised up above the platform. I chose to have it raised up above the platform and I had to get that depth right. But it's all pretty straightforward once you've been using it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's a super easy Tinkercad is super easy to use. Yeah, it is. And yeah, and it's just once you do, once you've done that, then you just export the file and simply just open it in Cura for Ultimaker. And if you're not doing anything special, you know, I just use some of the default settings and I I change them ever so slightly uh, based on experience, and then save it to an SD card. And then I bring it down to the printer and had to change. It took longer to change out the color like the the uh the plastic in the printer to the one to my plastic from the one that was here at the collective to uh then it did really to like create the file because <laughs> the printer's got to heat up you got to pull it out and then they, it's got to heat my plastic back up and then spit it out and you got to set it up and all that stuff and then you got to load the file and that takes a minute depending on the size of the file and um all i mean if you know what you're doing all that takes longer than to just download from thingiverse even modify with tinker tinkercad slightly and then get ready for printing. So pretty quick. Great, great. Um, yeah, just to, you know, not to just, uh, derail this too much, but uh, <laughs> Tinkercad, I've mentioned before, because we use it here in the uh, the sixth grade for, mm -hmm. uh, for a project that actually relates to archaeology. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty cool little program. If you haven't checked that out, I might as well do that too. Um, have you ever submitted anything up to Thingiverse? No, I've never... Well, the things I've made were... One of them I'm hoping to get some kind of patent on later on in life. Mm -hmm. um, so so not that. Uh, but really, I've just modified things I've brought, in brought down from Thingiverse to kind of suit my needs. So I haven't really somewhat invented something that I thought other people could use and then put it up on the Thingiverse yet. I haven't, haven't really gone down that road yet. One of my coworkers here, and again, this is way off topic, but he uh, he does a lot of uh, gaming, you know, video mm -hmm. games, uh, and he hosts, you know, uh, competitions and things. And there is a whole series of different 3D printed cases, holders for uh, for the Nintendo Switch to keep mm. people from, you know, absconding with it at one of these events or from popping nice. out parts of it and he's stealing bits of it. And so he's been working on his uh, on his spare time, like his lunchtime and such. He, uh, I see him constantly futzing around in, uh, in Tinkercad trying to make the perfect box or case or security device of some kind. So I'm going to have nice. to ask him once he's done uh, if he plans on submitting that back up to Thingiverse because I think the first couple that he experimented with were ones he got from there. 
some of the more fun things I've printed were related to gaming. I had a couple of friends that were way into gaming. And one of the things I printed was a Cthulhu dice tower. And I didn't know dice tower were a thing. Like, I guess I'm not, I'm not like a board gamer like that. And I apparently, for those that don't know, a dice tower is something you just drop your dice into. And through a series of um, like basically ledges and things like that, it basically randomized those, the rolling of a dice, right? Like Pachinko. And, Exactly. Yeah. It comes out the bottom and then, you know, you, you deal with them there. But this thing was enormous. It was like at the size limits of this 3D printer that we've got. It was probably six or seven inches tall and just this monstrosity looking thing, the Cthulhu Dice Tower. Go on to Thingiverse and look at the Cthulhu Dice Tower. It's terrifying. And the 3D printer did an amazing job at it. So it was it was really fun. Well, I'm intrigued. Yeah. So. Um. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, while we're on the uh, the idea of uh, of experimenting, of um, being a little uh, creative, um, the <laughs> app that I've got today is, um, you know, I I'm not going to say anything good about it, but I don't want to be mean about it because I kind of got the feeling it's uh, it's one of a series of uh, of a student's iOS uh, apps that he was experimenting with. It's it's made by <laughs> uh, Yasashi Matsuo. It's called Munsell Viewer. Mm-hmm. Now, I came across this because um, I was, uh, I don't know, I had just a wild hair as an idea that crossed my mind. And I did search and I actually wound up on um, on a discussion thread from an old post that you had on Team Black about mm-hmm. a different Munsell Viewer. Uh, and then I decided to go look to see if that one was still around. It apparently isn't, but there's this one. Um, and... It's a free app. It's iOS only. Uh, the interface is really rudimentary and hard to, really hard to grok because the buttons are text. There's little things in brackets, mem, mem, arrow to file, files to, you know, that maybe <laughs> might make sense, but uh, they didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. The main interface for it, if you can find it, um, is a series of tiles uh, with the Munsell numbers on them. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can kind of scroll horizontally through and, uh, geez, I can't even find where they are now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Munsell color chart. There we go. Uh, and so I'm scrolling through and they're different kind of triangles of, of little square tiles. Uh, you know, the, the most desaturated, most gray ones on the left and the most heavily saturated ones off to the right. And then there's a box that you can drag over to choose whatever color you're looking at, you know. So at the moment, I'm choosing 2.5R46. Uh, some of the things that are weird about it are the box that you drag over doesn't grab the uh, the color in the middle of the box. It grabs the one that's under the upper left corner. Um there's so many rough edges to this program that, again, it's not useful for anybody I, um, except for maybe for the programmer learning to program. Um, mm-hmm. But it did get me thinking, you know, and some of the discussions in that thread that you had, and this is from 2012, I believe. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's been around a while. <laughs> some mm-hmm. of the discussions were complaining about things that are still valid, like, you know, color fidelity on a device versus the, uh, the chips in that expensive Munsell book that you've got. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a serious problem. But I do, I, I look at these and I think, geez, you know, the main thing for me with a Munsell is the, the consistency and reproducibility, right? And so mm-hmm. I feel like I would love to have something that worked kind of in between, that, that you could use it as a way to quickly get you in the right zone of the Munsell. I think that, that you know, the difference when you choose between 2.5R5-8 and 5 10 uh, yeah, you know, if you're using the Munsell right, you're you're 
lighting is such that you're um, that you're getting that fairly accurate. But I think that the difference in that in most in most cases is not going to be actually significant. And I think that uh, people's perception of color is variable enough that you know no two people are necessarily going to see it the same. Uh, you know, I don't want to go way off into the weeds on to, um, to the problems and benefits of Munsell, but, um, but, you know, because they're widely known and widely discussed in, in archaeology. But I do feel like you could take a device that would get you, uh, you know, put some kind of a shield around it. And device, I mean your phone, right? And use the, uh, mm-hmm. the camera and use the, uh, use the flash on there so it's got a consistent lighting have it key in on a few chips to start with, you know, out of the real book so that it can calibrate itself and then use that to, uh, to get a color calibration off or a uh, color reading off of whatever it is, a soil or a ceramic or whatever that you're, you're trying to get a uh, Mansell reading for. Um, and again, this, if you feel like it, it's going to cost you exactly $0 to download this program and take you a few minutes to poke around with it until you find out that it's really hard to use. But it might get those gears turning. And I think that um, that for somebody who's so inclined to rethink how one could use a, a phone as a replacement or at least um, a temporary replacement for a Munsell color book, um, it'd be a really interesting project or series of projects. Yeah, so you're totally right. I'm glad you found that old discussion that we had because I had found the app, like you said, and that was, I mean, like you said, five, six years ago. And I mean, iPhones and other devices, sure, they were coming out with better screens and things like that, but, and and they're even way better now. But I think the arguments back then are somewhat still valid. One of the ones about color fidelity, I think depending on the newness of your device, these color um, retina displays, especially starting with the iPhone 10 and the iPhone line, uh, they've got true color displays. And so that being said, it's probably more similar to the chips that are found in the actual Munsell book. But here's the thing, like you said, Paul, variability in what people look at, uh, that's the big thing. And I think even if you're using the Munsell book, the actual Munsell book, the best practice on any site when you're Munselling a lot of soil is to have one person do it. Mm-hmm. And that way, at least you've got consistency across the site. And that's the thing I always advocated. And if that one person happens to be using an iPhone, to do their month sell? Well, I think you'll still get consistency of your answers. And does anybody really care if it's a difference between a 10YR, you know, 3.4 and a 10YR, you know, 3.5, you know, or, or something like that? I mean, there's, you're talking about shades here and really you're looking at color variability across the site to indicate soil changes across the site. And as long as you have the same person doing that, you could call that color George and the other color Fred, and it just doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't matter. I, I would imagine, too, if you're looking at a soil, soil profile from uh, geology websites, like a USDA geology website or something like that, and, and you're saying, oh, I'm expecting this color, there's probably some plus or minus variation in that as well, just because, you know, they're not stupid. They know that's going to happen. So I don't know. I'm encouraged by apps like this, and I think I think we're getting there. And I think with apps like this and the idea of having a Munsell on your smartphone combined with the slow but surely growing rise of augmented reality glasses and augmented reality on phones is that I think we're getting to the point where either you're going to look at or point a camera at a soil and it's going to be basically a spectrometer on your face and it's just going to tell you them on cell. So I think we're heading that direction 
anyway, that's mm-hmm. that's kind of a big idea there. And I'm glad people are still putting stuff like this out. Yeah, no, again, I didn't want to pick on uh, this particular developer. You know, it looks to be an experiment, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, kudos to him uh, for, for putting it out there for the world to see, you know. I, I don't yeah. think I would have the, the, the guts to do that, to put something that's clearly somewhat half-baked and just... Uh, let anybody download it and play with it and talk about it on their podcast and complain about it. Um, and it's better than anything I could do because I can't program an iPhone. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, again, I do look at it and I see, you know, it gets those gears turning. It gets the, the, the juices flowing kind of like, uh, reading Alexi's article got you back into wanting to do some 3d printing. I see this and I'm like, ah, oh, there's some really interesting <laughs> ways that one could make, a color viewer, let's call it a Munsell replacement or yeah, Munsell replacement just for, for point of argument here, um, out of, uh, out of their phone. And yeah, there are ways that it would work better and ways it would work worse, but you know, it's, it's a discussion worth having as a experiments mm-hmm. worth doing, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, we'll link to, um, the actual first time I wrote about that app was on the, uh, uh, blog post number 91 of the random access science blog that I used to write before I really got into the podcast. And I'll link to that in the uh, show notes, but I've got other stuff on Munsell on there as well. So if you use the search bar on the right on the random access science blog, which is digtech llccom forward slash blog, then uh, you can see several, uh, several articles I did on, on Munsell, including Munsell for the Munsell blog. Um, I did a blog post for the Munsell blog. They, it was an invited post. So that was pretty cool. Oh, that's cool. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, um, that's it for this week. Check out the links in the show notes for the apps of the days that we had. And hey, if you do 3D print anything from Thingiverse, or if you know I'm going to meet you at a conference and you want to print something, send it to me all ready to go. I'll print it out here. Um, I've got orange, green, and I think magenta. And I think I have black and like white accessible to me too if they're here. And I'll print it out and I'll bring it to a conference for you. So look for me at the Society for California Archaeology Conference in early March in Sacramento, California, and then in Albuquerque, New Mexico this year at the Society for American Archaeology Conference uh, in mid-April. So you want something 3D printed, I'll do it. They're light and I can stick it right in my suitcase. So that's great. Well, thanks a lot, Paul, for this episode. And thanks for setting up that interview with Alexi. Thanks, Chris. Talk to you in a couple weeks. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.